opening up episode 246 of Monster Kid Radio with the song John Travolta in the Castle Revolta. It's from the band Molokai. It's on their album Rack Attack 2.0. You can find them at molokaiu.bandcamp.com or just follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, classic monsters, modern talk, and me, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you back here for what turned into a part two. It wasn't intended to be back-to-back, but you know what? I think it just works to have Stephen D. Sullivan back on the show to talk about another kaiju film. Now, last week in episode 245, we talked about Godzilla versus The Thing. The very next film in the Godzilla series, franchise, whatever, the next movie is Ghidra, the three-headed monster. came out the same year, and we're going to talk about that with Steve here. After talking to Steve, you know, I think it's time to do an executive producer roll call of everybody who's contributed to our Patreon campaign at the AIP level or higher. And I'll also announce what's coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio. It is one of the episodes I've been looking forward to all year. But you're going to hear all of that after Stephen D. Sullivan talking with me about Ghidra, the three-headed monster. It's coming up right after this. Blood-chilling science fiction shockers, Island of the Burning Band, and Godzilla's Revenge. In this quiet setting, a tale of prehistoric horror is about to unfold with a science-battling awakening of long-gone giants. Fighting amongst each other for the conquest of our planet. See the giant spiders spin their web of fear around their enemies. Godzilla's revenge knows no limit. No end. No stopping. See man's last attempt at saving humanity from destruction. And Godzilla's revenge. on the same shock-filled program, Island of the Burning Dam. What is that strange noise and burning white heat that drove people to their death? I have been convinced that this island has become the center of an invasion, the central landing point for beings from another planet. What happens when an unknown power from outer space uses our radar signals as life-saving beacons to bring it to Earth to consume our energy? Island of the Burning Damned, an island desperate for help.
Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. A podcast about Hammer? I don't want to be the one to cross Tony Stark. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Oh, so it's not Justin Hammer. 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. Monster of is a skyscraper. When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Supersonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodin destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. Nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil.
back for more Kaiju action. We're back for more Steve Sullivan. There's even a little bit of Mothra in this, I think. Yeah, a little bit yes, more Mothra there. action. More Mothra. Not twice as much Mothra as we briefly had last time, but yeah, more Mothra. And uh, one of the last films, I, Mothra was in a couple of other films after Ghidra, the 300 Mothra, or Ghidorah, depending upon whether you want the original title or the Japanese newer title. But she wasn't in a lot of extra stuff after this for a while. Although, I, actually, I guess she was in Versus Sea Monster and, and uh, Destroy All Monsters. But it would be a while before the winged Mothra made a reappearance. Oh, I'm wrong about that, too, because that one's in Sea Monster as well. <laughs> sea Monster is actually the Godzilla movie that I have seen the least. Because I... Actually, don't think I saw it until just a couple of years ago because I had it confused with one of the other ones. And because they've retitled the Godzilla movies so many times in the U.S., I was having literally having a hard time keeping track of it. So I don't remember if it was Son of Godzilla that I was confusing it is. There's another Godzilla film that was made right in that same time frame that has Ibira the Sea Monster, the giant lobster in it. And so I had those two confused in my mind and had, I literally had the DVD for probably five or ten years and had not watched it. Anyway, so yes, we get some more Mothra. Yes, more Mothra for Steve. A a new direction for the giant monster. More Rodan for me. More Rodan. I I love love Rodan. Rodan. There are not nearly enough Rodan movies in the uh, the Godzilla series. I uh, agree. The, I mean, and this is the first time Rodan got lumped into a Godzilla film. Yes. So now Rodan is officially part of the Godzilla-verse. Yeah. And in case you didn't catch it last time, this is, again, one of my three core Godzilla movies after the first Godzilla movie. Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, Mothra vs. Godzilla, and... Invasion of the Astro Monster or Monster Zero or whatever you call it. I consider these the golden age of the Kaiju movie. You know, if you look at it, you can kind of see this character arc with Godzilla itself or himself. Yes. Because this is where the turn starts to happen with Godzilla. He's no longer, you know, the bane of mankind. Now he's Earth's defender by the time the movie wraps up. By the time the movie wraps up, yes. He starts as a total bad guy. Yep. But by the end of the film, he's not. And even though I think that arc works really, really well in this film, as a Godzilla fan, I'm not totally crazy about that. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Although I do like to see him fighting Ghidra. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so any excuse to put those two together and watch them fight, even if it's the other way around, like in GMK, Giant Monsters All Out Attack, yep. where Ghidra's the good guy for some reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason that Ghidra's the good guy in GMK is because Toho would not let the director, writer, use the three monsters right. he actually wanted to use in that film and insisted that rather than the three he wanted to use, that he uh, – I think he got to use one of them, and the other two they insisted be Mothra and Ghidra because Mothra and Ghidra are their franchise players. Right. If you're going to team Hulk Hogan up with somebody to <laughs> create a wrestling analogy, which I think I did in the last show, too, you're going to want Hulk Hogan to team up with Randy Savage and Rowdy Roddy Piper rather than, say, Hacksaw Jim Duggan or, or someone. Wow. You know, 
of you know not nothing against Hacksaw Jim. He had a good act, but you want the <laughs> you want the headliners all teaming up together rather right. than one headliner and three people that nobody cares about. You want the super team. You want the uh, the U.S. Olympics basketball team from the nineties, right? You know that, that's what you want. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you want the you want the dream team, the monster dream team, and that's uh, GMK is the monster dream team. And Godzilla gets to be a badass again, which mm-hmm. is always a good thing. Love GMK. And some of the seeds from that, again, are sown in this. This was, what, 1964? So a couple of years after Mothra versus Godzilla, or Godzilla versus the thing. Actually, they, I think oh, they're no, I'm sorry, about, I take that about back. the same year. Same year, excuse me. I'm looking <laughs> which is amazing. Else. Yeah, no, exactly me. Or This is the first time they did that the same year, right? Right, I think so. The amazing thing is that the level of work in both of these films is so high. Every aspect of it, you know, I mean, we've got Ishiro Hondra directing again and Tsuburaya doing amazing special effects in this and Ifukube doing some of his best music ever, although sadly, not all of it is in the U.S. version of the film. Nakajima is back as Godzilla and there are even a lot of the same players in this. And it's funny, until I watched this back-to-back with Mothra versus Godzilla. Recently, I hadn't even realized that the scientist character is played by the same guy and has the same name. So arguably, it's even the same scientist Yeah, from the previous film, Mothra versus Godzilla, Godzilla versus The Thing. Watching them back-to-back, I would agree with you. I, I think I've seen, well, I know I've seen this one more, of the, mm-hmm. the classic run, the Showa series of Godzilla films. This is the one I've seen the most. Yeah, I, I love this movie. But again, without watching it back to back to Godzilla versus the thing, it's not just Godzilla and Mothra that are making a return. I do feel like it's the same. I mean, I don't know if it was intentional, but sure, same scientists. Why not? So direct sequel. Let's do it. Right. Yeah. They never never quite say it's a direct sequel, but it it certainly seems in most ways to be a direct sequel. It has the same look. It has the same feel. And so many of the same people are working mm-hmm. on it. Like you, I think this is. One of my favorite Godzilla films of all time. It is right up there with Mothra versus Godzilla and GMK. I love this film. It's, boy, you know, it doesn't drift as far into the happy Godzilla as the next film, which I also love, Monster Zero. Mm-hmm. For me, this one is just a cut above that, and, and we'll probably go into the reasons why as as we move through the story and that kind of stuff. It's also the very first appearance of King Ghidorah, or Ghidra, as he was called in the U.S. release of the film. Right. You know, I feel like when we watch a new Godzilla movie now, or even go back a little bit, you don't get a lot of new Godzilla monsters. I'm trying to imagine this just being this amazing time. You're watching a Godzilla movie, and holy crap, here's this Ghidra thing. Never seen it before, never seen anything like it before in a Godzilla film. Wow. I mean, now... I'm old enough to have watched these on TV not too, too long after they were originally released. And I I talked last time about Mothra vs. Godzilla being probably the first Godzilla film I ever saw. And this one was probably the second one. I probably saw King of the Monsters, the Raymond Burr version, uh, around the same time as this. But this one, it's right from that same wheelhouse. And as a kid, it was just amazing, and it's to me it still is amazing on pretty much every level. I love this. I love this film. Oh, big fan of this one. Big fan of this one. For our purposes today, we're talking more about the U.S. release, Ghidra, the three-headed monster, 
version of the film, which was released in 65 here in the States. And I, I bring that up because there's a lot of differences <laughs> between this and the Japanese release. Uh, significant Ironically, differences. or maybe not, even though we'll be talking more about the, the U.S. version, when I prepared the, the summary that we're going to go through, I actually, on both this and Mothra, I actually went to the Japanese versions because I thought that the continuity would probably make just a little more sense if I went with the more classical, the original version. So take that into mind, viewers. So when I start talking about the scenes, which I'm probably going to do here any minute. <laughs> yeah, why don't we dive into it? Nothing the screen has ever shown before can surpass the thrills of Ghidra, the three-headed monster. Created from an atomic fireball hurled from outer space, Ghidra, the three-headed monster, threatens man's very existence on Earth. Three-headed monster battles Godzilla, Mothra, and Rodan for mastery of the world. Men quake before the terror of their unleashed fury. All new, all never to be forgotten, a new high in screen terror. Monster. Again, this uh, has a lot of the same cast as mm -hmm. Mothra versus Godzilla. The story begins with another ace reporter. Now, you'll notice that there are uh, the characters that appear a lot in these Godzilla films and the kaiju films. There are some kind of classic characters, and one of them that appears in a lot of these films, including Mothra and, and Mothra versus Godzilla, is a reporter character. And last time we had a reporter that was a male character and a female character character who was kind of the cub photographer. Well, this time we have Naoko Shindo, who is played by Yuriko Hoshi, who is an ace reporter. She's, she's actually really good at this. She's gone the full lowest lane, and here she is in this film as the ace reporter for her, uh, her news, news company, which I'm, I'm not really sure whether it's a newspaper or a television service. It's, it's I don't think they really unclear. make that clear, do they? Right. At least it wasn't clear to me. But it wasn't something I was concentrating on, really, until I thought about it later. It was like, oh, she television? And it doesn't really matter. Anyway, she's a, in this one, she's a competent reporter. And, and people have pointed out that there's kind of a, a female empowerment arc that actually goes through 
these films at this point where before the woman was a little bit of the butt of the joke and now she's not. Now she's kind of an equal player in the cast. So she's a reporter and, uh, you know, not to again pat my back, own back too much as a, I mentioned last time. The reporter character is one of the characters that appears in, in Daikaiju Attack as one of the main characters. A reporter character is really interesting because it becomes kind of a point of view character, an entry character for people just coming into a new situation because the reporter has to kind of investigate and find out what's going on. As I said, Yuriko Hoshi is in this, and Yuriko Hoshi, the actress, actually even has a cameo appearance in Daikaiju Attack during the, the beach party because she was also in a movie called, which I've never seen, called Campus A Go Go. She was in a lot of movies around this time, and I needed someone in a beach party scene who was a star, and she'd been in a campus movie, and I thought, Campus A Go Go, that's awesome. I need to see that movie. Just the title alone, I need to see that movie. It, well, exactly, and I hope to, too. As far as I know, it's never been released in the U.S., and I'm not even sure it's available in Japan, which is a bummer. Anyway, so she's an ace reporter, and she is on the top of a building with a bunch of UFO believers who are on this building top in the middle of Japan's one of Japan's big cities with their telescopes pointed at the night sky looking at UFOs. Now, there are, of course, no UFOs to show up. The UFOs don't show up until Monster Zero. But what they actually start seeing is a meteor swarm. And this is apparently a fairly large swarm, and it's going on all, all over Japan, which is apparently kind of in the middle of winter or a cold season, but suffering an unnatural heat wave. I'm not sure if that's because of when they were filming or why that detail is mentioned, because it it never really plays into the film at all. But right. they do mention a couple of times that it's an unusual heat wave for this time of the year. It comes up a little bit at the beginning, and you're right, they never come back to it. Yeah, they, they mentioned it a couple of times, but it, it never actually becomes a plot point, so that's a little odd. Maybe it was when it was released in Japan they wanted to, people to know, even though this is coming out in the middle of the winter, it's actually hot here, so we're going to – I don't know. It's, it's mysterious, and probably someone that's done more research than I can tell us why that happens, but not me. Anyway, she's watching the meteor swarm while across town. Her brother, who is a police detective, who they just call Detective Shindo, who's played by Yosuke Natsuki. Yosuke Natsuki. Again, as uh, with the Mothra show, my Japanese pronunciations are pretty good, but it's not like I live there or actually know how to speak the language or anything. And again, that's why I'm letting you do it. <laughs> <laughs> I can swear in Japanese because there's only one, one real swear in Japanese, though there are a couple of rude words. But other than that, I don't speak much Japanese. I can say good morning, good evening, and I can swear at you, but that's about it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Detective Shindo is supposed to go to the airport and pick up and guard Princess Mas Salinas Salno, who is played by future Bond girl Akiko Wakabayashi, who was in You Only Live Twice as the the girl that the ninja gets, <laughs> I believe, if I remember correctly. I was, gonna, I wonder if, I was wondering if you're going to bring up the Bond connection. I, I know, you know Scott's not here to do the Bond connection that we do on 1951 Down Place, but I, I wanted to make sure that got mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And anyway, so he's supposed to uh, guard the princess. While he's going to be heading out to the airport to meet her, she's actually in a plane traveling to Japan. And there's some kind of 
you know, coup attempt going on in her country. It's, it's clearly politically unstable. And that's why the police need to guard this beautiful woman. As she's in her plane, though, a mysterious light streams in from outside her plane. And she starts hearing, it's unclear whether this is a voice just in her head, which is what it probably is, or if it's actually an audible voice. She hears a mysterious voice that basically tells her, get out of the plane, even though the plane's in the middle of the air. Hypnotically, she gets up, walks, opens the door of the plane in the middle of the flight, and and steps out, and an instant later, boom, the plane completely explodes and shatters into, you know, a thousand tiny little model plane pieces. Wow, that's really bad. And she just walked out the door without a parachute. So, oh, probably last we've seen of her. That's what the bad guys figure, anyway, right. back in her home country. Meanwhile, while that's going on, we still have the meteor swarm going on, and maybe the lights are connected to that, and the mysterious voice might be connected to that. And a, a big meteor lands in the mountains uh, near a large dam. They probably said where this was, but I don't remember. And pretty much everything in the giant monster movies is based on a scale model of a real place. So I'm sure that we could find that dam and find those mountains and look it up if we were so inclined. It's just, again, the attention to detail that uh, Subaraya and his team put into these things was uh, really, really extraordinary. Anyway, it's phenomenal. Uh, yeah, a meteor lands in the mountains near this dam. Professor Miura, again played by Hiroshi Kuzumi, as near as I can figure, it's the same character with the same name played by the same actor. So this is, like we said, I guess this is a an actual sequel. Anyway, he and a team of his scientists go to investigate this mysterious meteor, but as they're going, they're hampered by the fact that their compasses become unreliable, and the meteor shows strange either magnetic or gravitic properties. It seems to attract things to it, and they're not entirely sure why. As they're doing that, back in the city, a mysterious prophetess appears. And this is a woman who's kind of dressed in a almost a, a Mao Zedong hat and coat and stuff. She's really uh, dressed almost as a man. And she claims she's from, well, in the Japanese version, she claims she's from Venus. In the U.S. version, she claims she's from Mars. Right. I'm not entirely sure why this happened. My best guess is that Venusian and Venus were just not going to be as sexy for U.S. audiences. Sure, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. <laughs> Again, if you dig deep enough, maybe there's someone that's looked into this and discovered why, but... That's my best guess as to why it happened. So in the U.S., she's, she's, uh, she's from Mars. In Japan, she's from Venus. Make of that what you will. She talks about herself as either a Venusian or a Martian. And she is uh, appearing in Japan and predicting doom and destruction and the return of giant monsters. We've got quite a few balls in the air already, but here's another one. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Shobijin... The twin fairies from Mothra's Island, who are, again, and as usual, played by Emmy and Yumi Ito, otherwise known as the singing duo The Peanuts, who were actual twins and an actual singing duo act. And you can get their CDs on Amazon and other places, though I don't actually have one. I don't think. Anyway, 
they are making an appearance on a comedy variety show, which apparently features two comedy variety guys from Japan that, of course, it's the 1960s, and I don't know comedy variety shows anyway. They have actual comedian guys playing comedian guys doing a variety show, and it's apparently one of these you-ask-for-it type shows where people, in this case a kid, comes on the show and says, I'd like to see a bear juggling oranges while eating a chainsaw or whatever. Wow. And the kid wants to know about Mothra. Well, Mothra's a little big to fit in the studio without mm, destroying the studio. So they've managed to get the Twin Fairies to come on this show in kind of an interesting progression for the twin, twin fairies from the previous two Mothra appearances. As you may remember, we mentioned briefly last time that in the first film, evil Japanese guys were kidnapping the fairies and forcing them to perform on television to make money. Sure. Sent, sent Mothra on a rampage, destroying a large <laughs> portion of Japan. In the last film, Mothra's egg washed up on shore. The Shobijin show up and try to convince the bad guys to give Mothra's egg back so the country won't be destroyed and Mothra Island can live in peace and happiness. Bad guys don't go for that. But in any case, last time there were the bad guys who still wanted to, they tried to buy the fairies so they could put them in their attraction. And the scientists released that. Well, apparently in the, the year or the six months or whatever it is between these two films, there's been a little bit of an advance in fairy rights. So this time, instead of <laughs> being kidnapped and f- put in a cage and forced to perform on Japanese television, this time the Mothra fairies are welcome guests here to perform on this show. They do their musical bit, and it's cool, as it always is, and it's interesting to know that some of the the uh, Akira Ufukube wrote pretty much all of this music in many 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 Godzilla films. One of the things he did not write though was some of the Mothra music because he didn't feel his sensibilities were suitable enough or feminine enough to do kind of pop music. I think they're performing a song that's written by somebody else at this point. I don't recall who it is. And there is a lovely, despite his protest, there's a really lovely, mournful uh, Twin Fairy song that uh, Ifukube did write. Anyway, they perform and everyone's really happy. And at this point, we get one of the kind of little continuity changes between the U.S. version and the version that's uh, from Japan in that the boy that wanted the Mothra on the show asks about how are the Mothras, well, not to give too much away, but there was more than one at one point. And mm-hmm. the the child is told in the Japanese version that one of them died, but the other one's fine. In the U.S. version, the twin fairies tell the boy that the old one died, but there is this new one. So... Just a little shift. You know, again, Mothra becomes a he in the U.S. version, whereas Mothra is always a she in the Japanese versions, which uh, we talked about a little bit last time in Mothra versus Godzilla. Anyway, the, the fairies have a, a, have a great show and everyone is happy. Meanwhile, the Shindos. Did I mention that 
the reporter and the, the detective are brother and sister? Not yet, and I was going to bring that up because they have – and I imagine it's more clear in the Japanese version, but they do have kind of a, a sibling bickering back and forth. Yes. O- occasionally in the English version, it seems less sibling and more – I don't know. There's some there's just an odd relationship there to me. Right. Well, when you cut out their uh, doing annoying brother and sister things to each other – back home with their mom, which is some of the footage that got actually just removed from the U.S. version. It does make it a little less clear, but, you know, they're one of these brother-sister relationships where they love each other, but at times they just drive each other nuts. Anyway, they've somehow now teamed up with the professor who is uh, jumps back and forth from being in the mountains to being in town, kind of as the plot needs him to. And they're watching, and at this point, they are watching TV, and the TV cuts to uh, the prophetess who appears at uh, Mount Aso Volcano and predicts that Rodan, and I suppose since we're talking Japanese-American here, we should point out that in Japan, Rodan is actually Radon mm-hmm. because in American English, radon means something different. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> at some point, Radon became Rodan for the American audience. Anyway, she's predicting that Rodan will reappear, and by the, all the gods of Japan, she is dead on, because within minutes of her predicting that, Rodan actually appears out of this volcano, there's like a, an earth tremor and he comes out of the side of the volcano all mad and pissed off and ready to go and, and trash Japan. And this is a place where we also get just a very small edit that I noticed when watching the two different versions is that there's a point where Rodan opens his mouth and gives a, a little bit of a Rodan cry. And in the Japanese cut, he opens his mouth a little too wide and you can kind of see that there's a hinged jaw on the bottom of Rodan's head there. And and it's like, oh, I understand you no retakes, no computer retouching, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, part of me is like, I understand why they cut that out for the U.S. release. And Rodan rises out of the volcano and flies away to cause havoc. We get a very brief and very weird moment in both the Japanese and the U.S. prints where when Rodan rises out of the volcano, the cry he gives is not the Rodan cry. Just once, and just very briefly, he goes, and it's the Godzilla roar. Why? Oh, I don't know. Maybe he's a minor bird or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the point, when I was watching this movie for the first time in a good while, where I was watching the U.S. version, and Rodan is flying up, and I notice that there's this weird piano music kind of playing in the background, and I'm thinking, boy, that's a really strange theme for Akira Ifukube to have played here. Or Ifukube. You know, Japanese. <laughs> it's really strange that this doesn't music doesn't really seem to fit the action on scene. And at that point, I actually... Uh, went to the Japanese version and played it for myself. And I was like, oh, look, they've taken out all the brilliant uh, Fukube music here at this point. And for reasons that are completely inexplicable to me, substituted new music. Not always, but at a number of points in this film that just don't seem to make sense. And that 
you know, I love this film, film as I said, and I like the it, the dubbing is again good on this film, but the U.S. version loses a couple of big oh. points. Oh yeah, for me for. Uh, ditching the original music to put in music. music. I mean, you sent me a message on Facebook. That music sounds funny. That's not right. It's like, yeah, I mean, I picked up on that right away, too. And I, I noticed it. I'm, I'm a film score guy. I love my film music. And, you know, when I hear something that's so iconic, like a Fuku-based music, you know where it's supposed to be. You know what you're supposed to be seeing when you hear it because it is so intrinsic and, and part of the film. So when they right. do change it up a little bit, that said... I still smile when the theme from Creature from the Black Lagoon shows up in King Kong versus Godzilla. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's it's a pity that there is no US version of uh the Japanese version. Right. of King Kong versus Godzilla. And uh sadly, I had I had a Japanese version in my uh, I got it at a convention or somewhere and it's obviously a DVD-R and they didn't use good discs and it stopped working, which is just Tragic. Oh man! <laughs> In a way that only a kaiju, die kaiju fan, can appreciate. Anyway, yeah. so Ronan <laughs> takes off. Meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of assassins who have uh, come to Japan to destroy the prophetess because they've seen her picture in the paper predicting doom and gloom, and they realize that she's the princess who didn't die in the plane explosion. So the prophetess shows up again as the Shobijin, the twin fairies. Shobijin, as I said during the Mothra broadcast, I think means little beautiful ones or something like that. And that's the common current reference to the twin fairies or the Shobijin. Anyway, they are going to take a boat back to Mothra Island, which is, aside from flying by Mothra, the only way to get there. And since Mothra is a caterpillar now, not an actual moth, flying is out. So they're going to go by boat, and the prophetess shows up and says, oh, this boat is doomed. You all better not go on it. And the crowd is about to get angry about that, but our ace reporter, Naoko, shows up right at that moment and spirits the prophetess away. Meanwhile, not too far away, her brother is also seeing a picture of the prophetess finally, and he's like, hey, wait a minute, this is the dead princess that I'm supposed to be guarding, I think. We better find this girl before she gets into even more trouble. Naoko takes the prophetess to a hotel, completely unaware that she's being followed by assassins who have uh, tracked the girl down. But the prophetess was right about the boat trip, because as the boat the fairies were on, drifts out to sea, who should appear but cue the music? Godzilla! Godzilla! Kajira! Gojira! I, and just as an aside, I just want to point out how adorable my wife is. Because every time I start talking about Godzilla, she does the Gojira. And it's just cute as hell. So, <laughs> just, just saying. Absolutely. She just you know, did it I right mean, now. So <laughs> <laughs> It's like the Adams family when he says, Tish, that's French, right? Yep. <laughs> it's like, yep. Gren, that's Gojira. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Godzilla shows up, and this is the same Godzilla suit, mostly from last time, which uh, we found out then was called Mosugoji, which is a combination of Mothra and Godzilla uh, in Japanese. Mosugoji, but I call this Mosugoji Mark II because the head of the Godzilla suit was actually damaged in the filming last film. 
they've reworked the head and it doesn't look nearly as sinister as it did in the last film. Yeah, it kind of softened it a little bit, which I suppose yep. since we know where Godzilla's headed in this. Right. And the eyes are a little bigger and they mm. put remote controls in the eyes so that they can actually move now. Points for technological improvement, but markdown for not nearly so wicked looking. So anyway, he blows the boat up with his atomic breath. Big surprise there. The princess is hiding out. Naoko goes down to the lobby because her brother, the cop, has tracked him down. And as she goes to meet him and say, princess? No, I don't have any princess here. What are you talking about? The assassins sneak into the princess's room. She doesn't recognize them because she thinks she's a Martian slash Venusian. But it looks really bad for her. Fortunately, the twin fairies were paying attention to this girl who said, don't go on that boat, it's doomed. And being twin fairies and clever about such things, they decided they'd rather tag along with her than be on the boat. So they're actually following along and are in the room with her as the assassins are plotting to kill her. Just before that can happen, the Shobinjins literally hit the light switch, shutting out all the lights in the room just as our hero, the detective Shindo, arrives to save the day. There's a brief exchange of gunfire, the bad guys flee, and phew, now we've got our heroes and the twin fairies and the princess who thinks she's a Martian Venusian all together, and they can go off and do stuff while they decide they're going to go get some treatment for this crazy girl who thinks she's from another planet but is really a princess, Godzilla and Rodan are roaming the countryside and the sky, naturally, just causing havoc and doing general cool giant monster stuff. The Shindos take the princess to Dr. Tsukamoto, who is played by the great Takeshi Shimura. Wasn't that awesome to see him in this? It is always awesome to see him in any film at all. Yeah. He's in a surprising and delightful number of Godzilla films. For those of you that don't know, Takeshi Shimura is the leader of the Seven Samurai in Seven Samurai. He is the old man in, uh, oh God, in the name of it just slipped my head. What's the one with the old man who wants to build a park that Akira Kurosawa did? I'm going to say it's Ikiru, but I'm not sure that's right. In my mind, I think of him almost as the Lawrence Olivier of Japan. He is at the top of their great actors list, as far as I'm concerned. If you were going to compare great actors from Japan, uh, Toshiro Mifune might be compared to, say, Brando, whereas Shimura would be compared, again, to Olivier or someone who's kind of a more classically trained actor he's anyway he's brilliant and because as we discussed in the mothra versus godzilla podcast because in japan there was no difference in prestige working on a kurosawa film versus a giant monster film you get people like takeshi shimura great actors working on kaiju films which you know at, at some point became even kids films in japan but they, they show up there, and they, they kill it. They give great performances, and this is just another wonderful performance by Shimura. And I don't, I don't know what more to say about it than that. It's just 
like you said, it's great to see him here. It's, it's great. I love to see him in a kaiju film, but I also love seeing him in Seven Samurai. So yeah. It's just great to yeah. see him. Throne of Blood. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, he's he's never given a bad performance in anything I've seen him in. He's one of the one of those guys. There just aren't that many actors that uh, turn in great work every time they're on screen, and he's one of them. Anyway, so he's the doctor, and the doctor has a clinic in the hills, and he's got all sorts of uh, electroshock equipment and stuff. And the reporter and her brother, the cop, have taken the princess here to see if they can get her to remember that maybe she's not really uh, being from outer space. Maybe she's really a princess who was uh, whose life was in danger. I, I should mention at this point, they have explained that she was fished out of the sea by a fisherman who had given her or sold to her for a, a royal bracelet, it turns out, the hat and the, the boy's clothing that she was wearing early in the film. So they didn't just leave that hanging, you know. How she got from an exploding plane into the the ocean below remains mysterious and you know, well, she slipped into a different dimension or something. And there's this weird right, yeah. explanation. It just doesn't make any sense. They did. It, it makes a little bit of sense. Sure. Okay. Like, <laughs> but mostly, I mean, they don't know that she heard this voice from outer space or whatever it was. Anyway, as she's there in uh, rehab, she predicts that King Ghidorah or King Ghidra, a space monster, is basically going to arise and destroy the Earth. And since she's been right about the last bunch of her predictions, this might be a little worrisome to our crew. At this point, Godzilla and Rodan are fighting a running battle around all across Japan and uh, culminating in the area near the base of Mount Fuji. I mean, they are making a wreck of the place, and there's some really nice kaiju grudge match fight going on here. You get the feeling, even though this is the first film where they've met, you get the feeling that this is... This is an old enmity that they are not fond of each other and that this is not the first time that they met and just decided, hey, there's another giant monster. I might as well bite him, fight him. You get the feeling that there's a grudge match going on between these two guys. So while they're rumbling down there, back at the meteor, that meteor that arrived in the first act finally splits open in a just an amazing cool special effects the meteor splits open and there's sparks and clouds and dust and a huge fireball rises up out of it and in a a scene that has been repeated by taking this clip out of this film and just running it endlessly the fireball forms with really cool animation into the titular character of the film, Ghidra, Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. And holy cow, talk about an entrance. That's an entrance that rivals the entrance of Godzilla in Mothra versus Godzilla, at least for me. It is so cool. I love it. I love. I could watch Ghidra just coming out. I just, man, I, I, I'm tongue-tied thinking about it because it's just so cool. I love Ghidra. So much. He's one of my favorite kaijus. I love this film so much. And when he emerges, there's this sense of awe for me. Right. And right. Just so overwhelming. And again, I'm I'm wishing that I could have seen this movie when I was younger without having any experience with any of this, not knowing what Ghidra was. Even on a black and white television. Yes. Probably was no more than 13 or 20 inches or whatever it was back in the days. This was 
amazingly impressive. Even the fact that you kind of get a silhouette, a silhouette and fire of this monster as he's appearing, and you still don't know what it's looked like. It's just a flaming, burning monster flying in the sky, and it's got wings. And then when the it all clarifies, it's a flying dragon with three heads. How cool is that? It looks amazing. It's just fantastic. And as soon as it shows up, you know it's going to fight Godzilla, and you can't wait for it to fight Godzilla. <laughs> Even if Godzilla's like, I don't care. <laughs> you know something's going to, you know, something's going to turn him around. I, I, I think it's kind of silly the way it all kind of turns around, but. Yeah, in, in one way, it's, to a grown-up, it's silly. As a kid, I freaking loved what, you know, what's what's going to happen next. We get the, the show begin, the government is trying to, figure out what to do now they've got three monsters rampaging through the country they summon the shobi gene to try to get mothra to help because mothra if you remember when godzilla was being a pain in the butt last time mothra stopped by to help out so they try to get that going at the same time the princess is getting electroshock therapy to try to return her back to a princess from a martian slash Benusian. the bad guys show up try to electrocute her fortunately this is one of those moments where the monster and human stories intersect and this happens a couple of times in these films and i really like this in some sense it's almost a a little bit of a deus ex machina but rodan drops godzilla on some power lines or something like that and just as the bad guys are about to up the dose to kill the princess rather than cure her uh, the power goes out and then the heroes show up (laughs) and we have a gun battle in the clinic and the the bad guys get away, and the good guys get away, and they're now they're chasing each other. The good guys are going up into the mountains to try to get away from the monsters who are coming to uh, down the countryside to wreck the clinic accidentally, of course. We've got the twin fairies. All these elements are converging together to the, the final battles of this film. So we're going to get the assassin trying to do in the princess. We've got Godzilla and Rodan fighting each other. We've got Ghidra fighting everybody we got Mothra coming to try to help out with Ghidra I don't know how much how much more do we want to talk about what happens in the film after this point you know I I do want to just say that again I think it's a little silly the way all the monsters decide to team up they do decide to team up I guess we should go at least that far yeah I just I mean it's so I get it I don't know how else he would have done it but the monsters get together and they have a chat which is famously kind of <laughs> silly. Mothra shows up where Godzilla and Rodan are. She sprays them with her her silk webbing, which, by the way, didn't mention that last time. The Mothra silk, every time they use it in these films, just amazes me because it's clearly a practical effect that ends up looking like exactly what it's supposed to be she's spraying webbing on these guys you can see it spraying out of the little nozzle in the front of her mouth across the air and actually coating these guys forming into basically cobwebs on them live as a practical effect anyway it's really cool and i discovered that it's it's actually a form of liquid styrofoam, apparently, that they invented a a number of ways to kind of deliver it, depending upon whether Mothra is on screen or not. And it's apparently very flammable. And the only thing you can clear, clean it off with was gasoline. What? Yeah, that's that's (laughs) what they said. 
<laughs> That's what they said in one of the commentaries. So, and, wow. and there's stuff like that. I remember, you know, it doesn't happen as much now, but I remember growing up in the 70s, there were times when you, working on cars and stuff, where you would end up using gasoline as a cleaning agent because, you know, gasoline's properties were good for that kind of stuff. Anyway, but you can imagine how, how wonderful that was for the foam rubber suits that these people were in. Yeah, I'm sure. So you didn't, you know, don't anybody smoke on the set today, please. <laughs> anyway, Mothra sprays the other monsters, gets them to stop fighting each other because they've been conducting this running battle. She sprays the other monsters with the silk enough to calm them down and talk to them. And she basically says to them in a kind of a wonderful but also goofy moment that if we don't team up, Ghidra's going to destroy everything and we live here too. That's what happens that precipitates the finale. We won't tell you what happens with the the assassins and the princess, but all that is fairly interesting too. But at this point, since... We're not going to reveal the climax. I would like to talk about this turn in the Godzilla mythos because this is the point yeah. in Godzilla where Godzilla turns from being all threat all the time to being what would later come to be called Godzilla Defender of the Earth. Right. I have very mixed feelings about that. I mean, I prefer him as a villain. I like the bad guy Godzilla. I like him being a too. monster, you know, but – you know, I do too. The turn does give him some other opportunities to do some other things. Right. Um, you know, he does get to fight Ghidra, <laughs> which is always a plus for me. Right, yeah. And the battle between Ghidra and these three monsters is a very cool battle. Oh, I love it. I, lo- I love that even though Godzilla's got atomic breath and all that, he's just picking up rocks and throwing them at Ghidra. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's so right. goofy and silly. And it's like, I'm just going to chuck a bunch of rocks at him. I love it. And there's a point where Ghidra zaps him with electricity in the butt and stuff. And it's, yeah. you know, at this point, it Godzilla is clearly moving toward more of a kid's movie yeah. kind of thing. Is it in this one that they bat the rock back and forth between each other? Um, You know. Was it him and Ghidra or I, him and Rodan? They uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah. You know, it's like I was spacing out clearly during that. I remember that scene and I don't remember. If, I think it's this one, but it could be Monster Zero. Too. Yeah. That um, either way, it's it's clear that things are getting a little soft. They're getting a, a little less serious in terms mm-hmm. of the monsters, even though the human characters are playing this all very, very straight. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why this film works really well, is that the human drama, you could almost take it out of the monster film and make its own little film out of it, where it's an espionage spy drama, police versus assassins with the princess at stake no, nobody can shoot straight but right yeah but you know <laughs> yeah not not a lot of people get shot but that's okay you know i mean there there is cert, a certain amount of death between uh this is true. some of some of the characters in the film I, i'm of two minds about this because on the one hand this is where you need to go to get godzilla and rodan and mothra and ghidra all fighting it does take the monsters out of the realm of, in some sense, forces of nature, which is what I prefer them as. And, you know, you've read Daikaiju Attack. The monsters in Daikaiju Attack are portrayed more as forces of nature. They are, at best, if they are not malevolent, they are, at best, indifferent to humanity. And that's what makes them dangerous. Even though they may be interesting, they're inherently dangerous. This moves to the point where the monster... Mothra always had some personality. But until this film, Godzilla and Rodan, not not nearly as much, I don't think. I agree with you. I 
I, um, before we started recording, we had a conversation about Lovecraft. And I'm yep. a huge Lovecraft fan, and I love the fear of the unknown, the things that are out there that just don't even care about us. They're indifferent to us. We are to them as gnats are to us, that sort of thing. And I do appreciate some of those elements with the earlier kaiju films, especially the first Rodan. I right. really, really like the first Rodan. Oh, as much the first as I Rodan's lo- a brilliant film. I love it. As much as I love Rodan as a kaiju, I kind of prefer the Rodan from the first film over all the other Rodans we've seen because he does have that element of indifference and it just is operating on a level that's so beyond what we do or what right. we it's know. Right, it's the force of nature thing, yeah. Right, I love that. That's what I really respond to. You can't have a force of nature and expect to sell them to kids you know, right. as, a, as a mascot or something to sleep with at night. You, you can't have monsters blowing up jets and destroying buildings and stuff and you know i mean you never think about this as a kid but in theory there's a person in each one of those jets that rodan or mothra or godzilla takes down at least in in the mothra the original you took my my people and now you're going to pay things so that kind of like you get a little less sympathy for things get get destroyed Mm -hmm. as you're trying to regain your quote-unquote children well even in the previous film in mothra versus the or excuse me godzilla versus mothra mothra versus godzilla whichever the last one mothra Uh, versus godzilla (laughs) we spend all that time on well not a lot of time but a little bit of time on that boat and excuse me no that actually happens in this film i'm sorry i'm mixing him up she (laughs) appears on the boat and she says you know we got to get off this boat this boat's going you cannot go out to the ocean or whatever Basically, you're all going to die. Right. <laughs> and yes. we actually see the people on the boat, and we get a little bit of a connection to who these people are. And then it catches fire later. And you know all those people that you saw about five minutes ago on screen, they're dead. They're dead. There, yeah, There is this sense of human loss that you get through the first part of the f- this film, but towards the end. In the towards the end series, of the film. Yeah. It's monster. It's monsters versus monsters. And the Godzilla, who literally blew up that ship full of people. And Rodan, who had been knocking down bridges and blowing away cars and whatever else with, you know, with supersonic speed. At the end of the film, they do what in wrestling you call a face turn. In wrestling, yes. there, there's <laughs> baby faces who are the good guys and there's mm-hmm. heels who are the bad guys. And when a heel becomes a baby face, you call that a face turn. And this is the film where Godzilla and Rodan start that face turn. By the end of the film, they've still destroyed things. But by the end of the film, in previous films, all the monsters had to be dead except Mothra at the end of, dead or vanquished at the end of films. Right? Mothra not because Mothra is, you know, Mothra started as a protector. Mothra continues in that tradition throughout her, her film appearances, which is one of the reasons she's really unique and, and one of the reasons I like Mothra because Mothra has had kind of a consistency through her appearances in films. But anyway, before all the monsters had to be gone, in this film, that doesn't have to happen anymore. Right. And that makes a different dynamic. As a kid, though, the point at which the monsters are quarreling verbally, because there is monster talk here, (laughs) that the, the fairies translate, at the point that they're quarreling and then decide to team up, through the a fairly classic reason why it happens when you see it on the film, not to give it away. But when they decide to team up as a kid, that was the coolest thing ever. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, go get them. Mm-hmm. Go get that space monster. So I still feel that. 
I still have that. But as the grown-up, part of me mourns the loss of the terrifying force of nature, Godzilla and Rodan. As, for me, being somewhat more interesting than the protector of the Earth. I, like I said, I'm willing to give Mothra the protector thing because, I mean, she goes on what one of my friends called the bloody trail of vengeance in the first film, not for any <laughs> selfish reason, but because the evil guys have kidnapped her people and forced them into slavery as tiny singing stars on television, which is just kind of a, an amazing, weird thing in and of itself. So she was, I'm willing to give her that, but when, when the other monsters become less threatening to humans, uh, they lose a little bit of their edge. And this film started that. The next film, which is the last of my kind of classic trilogy, Monster Zero, whether you know whether you're calling it Attack of the Astro Monster or Attack of Astro Monster, I think the article is missing. Attack of Astro Monster or Monster Zero, Godzilla and Rodan get pretty much to the end of their face turn and become even more anthropomorphized. Godzilla does a little dance. I love Monster Zero. I just don't love it quite as much as Ghidra which I don't love quite as much as Mothra versus Godzilla slash Godzilla versus The Thing. Because I that arc, I like the monsters better as monsters than as giant protectors of the Earth. And that's one of the problems I have with the... Is it Gareth Edwards? The recent, the 2014 Godzilla. Is that, yes, Godzilla gets to destroy things and be badass, but at the same time, they've already cast him as the protector of the Earth. Now that takes a little bit of the edge out of him, which is too bad. Mixed feelings about this, but it's still a great film. And the monster battles are awesome. The special effects work, some of the stuff, especially with Ghidra, is just amazing. And you know it had to have been just an amazing pain in the butt to try to do it. Because clearly one of the reasons we don't see Mothra flying around as a moth in this movie, or in any most of Mothra's appearances over the next 20 years is because doing the wire work with a a 15-foot-wide model of a moth is a pain in the butt. Ghidra is at least that big, and Ghidra has three heads that are also have to be wire-controlled. So it has to be a pain in the butt, and one of the testimonies to how much of a pain in the butt it was is they ended up using footage from this film and from Monster Zero and probably every other Ghidra appearance ever there was until they started the new series in the 80s. It just became Ghidra was hard to manage. Even in the GMK, they had to scale Ghidra down for that film, which is one of the one of the minor problems with it, because the Ghidra original design was just too big to manage as a suit without serious problems. But in this film, they've got it all together, and it rooks marvelous, as Billy Crystal used to say. Doing <laughs> I think where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say it looks marvelous, but if you're my age, which is in the middle of my 50s, you can't say it looks marvelous without hearing Billy Crystal go, it rooks marvelous. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a big fan of this one. I mean, I, I've got some issues with it. Uh, I think the monster powwow, where Mothra tries to convince everybody to 
to help out. It, it's a little much, and it does get a little kid-friendly, but I still like the it big is. fight at the end. The and powwow actually plays better, I think, in the Japanese version than it does in the American version. I think so, too. So, I think so maybe, too. maybe just because it it isn't so obviously kind of goofy. And there are more goofy elements in this fight scene than I remembered there being last time I watched it. You know, like I said, there's a point where Ghidra is kind of spraying Godzilla with lightning and Godzilla is kind of shimmying and shaking and stuff and clutching his butt or wherever he's been blasted. Then it's like, huh, I don't kind of remember that. And as you said, again, somehow if it was in this film, there's a, the batting the rock back and forth sequence in one of these films. It's just like, oh, really? Whereas, again, you know, you and I just recently did the Godzilla versus the Thing, Mothra versus Godzilla Mm -hmm. cast. The monster fight in that, the monster fights, the the two battle sequences between Mothra and Godzilla, there is no funny crap in it. They are just trying to kick the living hell out of each other. And it's awesome. Like I said, I love this film. I love this film, and it's very high in my pantheon. Again, the Japanese version, where you get to hear the actual intended Ifukube music more than the American version at this point. But, yeah, it it started a trend that I'm not crazy about, that then culminated almost immediately after. You know, it was like it, it got silly very quickly. It's like watching James Bond when Roger Moore took over from Sean Connery. Live and Let Die is fairly straightforward. But then almost immediately after that, Bond got kind of silly for a long time. And I just don't like silly Bond better or nearly as well as serious Bond. Mm -hmm. And I don't like silly monsters as well as serious monsters. I'll still watch any Godzilla film pretty much over almost anything else that comes on TV. If I have a a choice between Godzilla and something else, I'm always going to watch Godzilla, even if it's – oh, what's the one everyone hates? The one where it's about the little kid's fantasy. And again, the reason I don't remember the names of these is because they've changed names so many times right, in my life. Yeah. It's like, which one is that? Is that all out, all monsters attack now? Anyway, it's the one with the little kid. Even that, it's still got the monsters and the suits and the, I still love those and, and will watch those. Even, even the one with the, the giant shaggy dog versus, you know, it was the cosmic monster, um, who's the, the kaiju's name slipping my mind. Oh, King Caesar. Caesar, yeah. yeah. King Caesar, which even of itself is like, why is there a Western name on this character? Even that one, which is very silly in many ways, all of those I will happily watch pretty much any time they're on. I think I said this in the last one, that even the, even the ones that aren't that great, I'm still going to find something that I enjoy yep. in them, because it's, it's, it's a Godzilla movie, you know, it's a kaiju film. They're... Right. they're part of who we are now as monster kids so you're gonna, you're right. gonna find something to enjoy and, and don't get the wrong idea yeah listeners there is a lot to enjoy oh, in this film oh yeah small and even and, in the other ones but this one and the one we did last time specifically there's a lot of really good stuff yeah there are amazing films and i love this film despite it's starting a trend that i don't really sit with mm-hmm. you know maybe at some point we'll we'll do Monster Zero, or you'll do it with someone else and you talk about where it went from there. But this one is kind of the, for me, even though I love Monster Zero, this is the last one where there were still really threatening versions of right. Godzilla. Until we get to the Heisei era with right. uh, the return of Godzilla or Godzilla in 1985, depending on right. which side of the ocean you were on. Right. Yeah, exactly. And again, I, I love them all. But again, this one. 
despite our qualms about it and our qualms about you know what they did with the music and the English language version and that kind of stuff, this is still a great kaiju film. Yes, it is. One of the best. Hands down. Yep. I'm glad we decided to finally do these. I know we've been chasing each other around for a while to get these on the show with you. I think we've been talking about it for about four months. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. So thank you for oh, being very, patient very with me as we got this scheduled. I hope the listeners dug it. I know I enjoyed the conversations we had. Now, at the very beginning of the Mothra episode, you mentioned the Monos books. Right. Do we want to talk about those again? Real yeah, I'll, I'll mention it just briefly for people that didn't catch that cast. I've just released a comedy version of a novelization of Manos, The Hands of Fate, the classic bad film. There is a comedy <laughs> version that's out for e-readers now, for any e-reader you care to find, either on Amazon or on Smashwords. And you can read that, and it's uh, relatively cheap, and you'll get a, a number of good laughs out of that. It's a good companion for the movie. It will be out in print, I hope, by the start of December. As we're recording this, I just ordered print proofs on that. So hopefully, by, like I said, by the start of December, with luck, by Black Friday, you'll be able to buy Manos in print form to give to all your gift-giving needs. I'm following that up with a deadly serious version of Manos. <laughs> so, so, we, give, so uh, hold on a minute. You're telling people to give their loved ones something related to Manos. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure. Oh, I'm you on... get your loved ones the Blu-ray of Manos, too, which is just awesome. And, <laughs> awesome, uh, but man. It is as good as a bad film can get. <laughs> I, I almost feel like it's harder to watch i mean i love the blu-ray don't get me wrong i'm glad i supported it and i love it uh -huh. but with the picture looking that much better you expect the movie to be that much better and it's not no it's not <laughs> but i'm glad I, i'm glad i have it it's pretty cool to have it's still a bad film but a lot of us and clearly i am one of them have become mm -hmm. very fond of that bad film oh, and me too. part of it is that you can see the honest effort that went into making it. They failed on almost every level. <laughs> but they were trying as best they knew how. And there, some people, you know, uh, Tom Naiman, the master, and clearly John Reynolds, who played Torco, they were putting a lot of heart and soul in, into that film. And, you know, even Hal Warren, who was the writer-director star, clearly was – they were trying they were trying hard, and I, I think you appreciate that in some sense, even when it fails. Sure. Even though it's not a good movie, but it is a good movie in a sense that you can enjoy it. I, I've said, you know, it has a reputation as the worst film in the world, and it's not the worst film in the world. I've seen no. there is a Bruce Lee exploitation picture that I reviewed for Video Hans Dragon book that. It was so bad, I, I think I gouged my eyes out after watching it. It was just appalling on every level. Um, <laughs> that is a much worse film. I, it's so bad that I don't even remember the name of it. You can find the review of the book in amid the 1,200 other reviews or whatever it is that uh, my friend Brian Thomas did most of the reviews put together. You can find it in that book, but I blocked the name out of it, out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, It's that bad. So the Manos is not the worst film in the world, 
but it may be the worst film in the world that you can actually watch and enjoy. And read a novelization of. And read a totally awesome yes. novelization of. And with any luck, by the end of 2015, I'll also have my serious version of Manos, which was my original challenge to myself to make an actual scary book, a scary story, a truly scary story, out of a terrible movie. That was my original challenge. Midway through, I decided that I should do a funny version because otherwise I was not actually, I wouldn't be giving the market what I wanted. And being completely insane at that point, I said, well, why don't I do two? <laughs> Which no one in their right would ever have done, but that's being in my right mind is not something I've often been accused of. So those are out. Daikaiju Attack, the giant monster story, is still out. It's uh, brand new monsters and new characters and stuff that harken back to these classic kaiju and daikaiju films. People that like Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster will definitely like this. You can see a lot of tributes to actors and actresses and characters and even monsters. So that's available for people. And I will continue to do new things. I'm working on the Cushing Horror things. I mentioned last time that I've got treatments finished for screenplays. Plenty to keep me busy. And we'll definitely... Well, to use your word, crow about it here as well. So please, Steve, keep us posted. I mean, you and I are pretty good friends, so I know you'll let me know what's going on. But we'll talk about it on Monster Kid Radio as well because we definitely want to support that. You know, we didn't mention this last time, but I want to mention it now. Uncanny Encounters is available online through Amazon. Yep. And I don't think we talked about that before, we? Did didn't we? mention that last time. Yeah, no, I just uh, brought out a, a book of plays mm -hmm. with my friend Paul McComas who's been a guest on your show. Sure. Paul and I are good friends. In fact, that's how you get to, to meet him. And yep. we've done a book of plays called Uncanny Encounters Live that is available now in print form on Amazon for you, your reading pleasure and your potential performance pleasure. If you've got uh, a group and you want to do some science fiction, fantasy, and horror plays, mm -hmm. I've got two longer pieces in it, one of which is an adaptation of uh, my previous story, Corona Encounters, I think the original was called. Anyway, it's about looking for aliens near Roswell, and then I've got another one that's a riotous comedy about uh, called The Alien in the Closet, which is about uh, movie stars and strange religions. So, And Paul's got an amazing... <laughs> so it's the Tom Cruise story. I'm not going to say that, but it might be. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, for uh, Scientology and its lawyers, it's definitely not that. <laughs> uh, anyway, you can read that. It's hilarious. I'm hoping that uh, uh, Paul and I came close to getting it uh, read on stage last year, and then uh, he had a terrible car accident, which, thank God, he's pretty much recovered from, and uh, things got derailed. So at some point, we'll, we're hoping to get it on stage, and if you have a group likes to perform plays and is interested in science fiction and fantasy and horror... Paul's got a lot of uh, playlets that are very, uh, very horror oriented and make you think. And the people will like this. It's a, it's a good read, and, and that actually is my newest thing in print. So run right out and grab it. You can find stuff about me at stephendsullivan.com if you can spell Stephen with a ph, or sdsullivan.com if you can't. Uh, you can find my <laughs> man of stuff at. Manosfilm.com, which I was surprised was available as a URL, 
Jackie Naaman and her dad didn't want it, so I snatched it up. And uh, all that stuff will keep you keep you going for a little while, I hope. Definitely. And we do have a link to your website in the links section of monsterkidradio.net. You're one of the permalinks in there. Yay. Uh, you've been a supporter of the show from the very, very beginning, even before we launched. You were on board, so I appreciate I all of your support, man. I was either the first or the second person you recorded, I think, even though my show didn't come out like right away. So, yeah, yeah. You were, yeah, we actually recorded before the official launch, so I'd have some things in yep. the bucket ready to go. Yeah, so I've been here since before the beginning, and I'll I'll be back again as soon as you can have me on the show, as soon as we can find a time to squeeze in to talk about Planeta Burr or, oh, or, yes. or whatever else you want to talk about. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I know we talked a little bit about that. We should. But there's so many movies, not enough time. If only we lived next door to each other, we could do one of these every day. We would never get anything done. There'd be no, no books, man. There'd be nothing else. It just... There wouldn't be. Over at each other's house watching monster movies and talking about monsters and stuff. <laughs> All you ever do is go to Steve's house to watch movies. Well, today he's going to come over to mine. It's different. So There you go. <laughs> so it's probably good we live in uh, a couple yeah. thousand miles apart. Probably. <laughs> All right. All right, Steve, again, thank you for being part of Monster Kid Radio's history. Thank you for being part of these episodes. And uh, best of luck with the Monos projects and all your future books. Please keep me posted about Cushing Horrors. I'm really excited about that one, too. Thank you. I will. There's a, You can see the if you type in CushingHorrors.com, you can see a, I haven't officially started the Patreon for it yet, but I may fairly soon. Maybe at the start of the year. We'll see. Right on. Well, we will follow along. I just went to Cushing Horrors myself. It went to your Patreon page, and there you are doing your Dark Shadows pose. Yep, me and my Dark Shadows cloak in front of the original Dark Shadows mansion. So there you go. Fantastic. Steve, again, thank you. You're very welcome, Derek. Keep up with Steve at his website at sdsullivan.com. Or again, follow the link in the show notes. You know, over at monsterkidradio.net, you're going to find links to everything that we talk about in every episode. Just head over there, get to Steve's website, or just go straight there. However you get there, let him know that Monster Kid Radio sent you his way. His website is up to date with all of his projects. You can find out about his books, his upcoming projects, and from time to time, he also posts on his website when he appears on another podcast. So if you are interested in hearing more from Steve, that's where you're going to go. Of course, I'm sure we'll have him back here on the show in 2016. Now, giant entertainment, giant terror, the war of the gargantuan, and Monster Zero. Do you see anything? From a planet 50 million miles beyond the stars came a strange message. Lend us your Rodan and Godzilla to fight our Monster Zero. Earth answers, and the most dreaded creatures ever to walk our planet are lifted into outer space. The stage is set for the mightiest battle ever seen by the universe in Monster Zero. All forces on Earth ready to attack. What started out as a call for help from space turns into a nightmare of terror on Earth, Monster Zero. And the War of the Gargantua. It began with a mysterious, wild storm at sea. And before the night was over, the whole world would hear of the terror of the Gargantua. Where had such a monster come from? What forces created such a devastating destroyer? Who or what could stand up to it? 
armies fought the monster with million volt laser beams. Hey, look! Another one! You'll see all of their terrifying battle to the death when you come to the greatest monster movies ever made. The War of the Gantuas and Monster Zero. From outer space they came. With a dastardly plan to steal the minds of the youth. Only one person stands in their way in... Danny Johnson saves the world. Never charge you to download or listen to Monster Kid Radio. It's free for you to consume. However, there are some costs involved in producing the show. There's hosting costs, there's the production time, a few things here and there that make the bills add up a little bit. And that's why Monster Kid Radio has a Patreon campaign where you can help support the show financially while scoring yourselves some sweet rewards along the way. Now, a couple of things about our Patreon campaign. Last month, the month of November, well, an issue of the Monster Rally Checkpoint e-newsletter did not go out. And that means that all of you that were expecting an issue of this to hit your email box, every patron of Monster Kid Radio gets one. Well, it didn't happen. And I apologize for that. However, I will make sure that the December release is double-sized. That's right. We're going to put a lot of content into that one and make it worth the wait. And, you know, you don't have to be a patron to get that e-newsletter. Just head over to monsterkidradio.net. Over on the right, you can put in your email address under Monster Rally Checkpoint. Hit subscribe and you're set. Anyway, back to Patreon and back to our patrons. I want to give a shout out to what we call the executive producers. These are people who support the Monster Kid Radio Patreon page at the AIP level or higher. So, special thanks to the following in no particular order. Sean Hode, Stephen Turner, Frank Schildener, Joseph Perry, Tracy and Scott Morris, Andy Campbell, Tom and Eileen, Mitch Gonzalez, Paul McComas, Justin Giallo, and Mike Catino. Thank you for your patronage of Monster Kid Radio. Also, if people are interested in seeing their name in lights, okay, actually just on the website, over at the left of our website, you've got a special thanks section, and this is everybody who supports the show at the Poverty Row level or higher. Let me say kick in a buck a month. Again, thank you. Thanks to Stephen D. Sullivan for appearing here on Monster Kid Radio and talking about some giant monsters with me for the past two weeks. I cannot get enough kaiju. So, Steve, thanks for bringing some giant monsters to the Monster Kid Radio table. And I can guarantee you there will be more kaiju discussion here on Monster Kid Radio with people like Stephen D. Sullivan, Anthony Wendell from The Gigantic Project, and a few other people that I have in mind next year. Stay tuned for that. Also, stay tuned for next week's episode next week 
episode 247, the third annual Monster Kid Radio Holiday Gift Guide is coming. And I've got something different planned this year. So you're going to have to come back to the podcast to find out exactly what that is. Or again, just keep it locked in at monsterkidradio.net. Of course, you can download new episodes of the podcast every week at our website or through iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use. Whatever podcatcher that is, if they have a rating system, well, we appreciate any honest reviews you can throw our way. Also at our website, we've got everything else you need to know about the show. Our contact information is over there. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is our email address and our voicemail is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5M. K-R. We have links to every song that's appeared here on the show. If you are a podcaster or a content producer and you'd like a Monster Kid Radio promo, click on promos. You can download and use any promo from the Spook Show series. We have four of them there featuring different voices from different podcasts. They're pretty cool to hook me up like that. We also have a link to our Facebook group where you can join conversations between episodes or even while you listen. Next week's Monster Kid Radio Holiday Gift Guide episode is gearing up to be an epic undertaking for myself, and I cannot wait. So I'm going to go get to that right after I remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song John Travolta in the Castle Revolta. You know, I picked that song because of a couple of comments that Steve and I made during our discussion. I don't know if the joke carried, but anyway, that song is fun and it appears on the album Rack Attack 2.0. Molokai is a surf band out of Macedonia and you can find them on Facebook or on Bandcamp. The name of the band is spelled M-O-L-O-K-A-I. Add a U to it and then put bandcamp.com and you'll find them online that way. However you look them up, Tell them that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody next week. Mm-hmm.